trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program exists not to tell you what to think, nor to convince you how smart and good-looking I am, which would be a pretty much impossible task anyway. Nope. I am here to uh, help you and to encourage you to think more clearly and independently. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with whatever I'm talking about or whoever I'm interviewing. It's, uh, it's more a matter of just let's look more closely at the principles at stake. Let's be less certain of what makes us angry and what, uh, who or what we're against. Let's know who we are. Let's know what we stand for. If that rings the right chords in you, then please pull up a chair. Come and find courage and camaraderie with your fellow wrong thinkers as we engage in thoughtful, informative commentary and interview for people interviews rather for people who enjoy thinking for themselves. Got some great sponsors who make this possible on a day-to-day basis. Let me send a little love their way. That includes MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com. I tip my hat to the great team, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, as well as the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, HSLAmmo.com, and GovernYourIncome.com. If you want to get a little closer look at any one of these sponsors, I've got a special link on my website. That's the com. So I wanted to start today with some clarification. I used a word the other day that uh, caught a few people off guard. Okay, a couple of people asked me, what, what is this panarchy you were talking about? I know it sounds a lot like anarchy. Aren't we supposed to be scared of anarchy, right? Uh, doesn't that mean there's no rules? It's just the law of the jungle? Well, okay, first by way of explanation, Anarchy, if you break it down, simply means an, the, the prefix an means without. Archis, I guess it comes from a Greek word that refers to rulers. So what it means is without rulers. You don't need to be ruled as opposed to there are no rules. Far less scary thing than, than you've been led to believe. But then again, the people who are saying, oh, that's a dangerous bomb throwing, you know, tooth and fang kind of existence are usually the people who are looking for one or more ways to exercise power or to bring you under their authority so that uh, you will do whatever they tell you. But that's not panarchy either. So let's talk about what panarchy is. Time to explore the difference between being free to choose and being forced to choose between artificially limited options when it comes to your governance. So the political definition of panarchy is, you know, you, you get to choose which government you want to live under. And I haven't found a better down-and-dirty explanation of the blessings of panarchy than the one offered by Paul Rosenberg. And he calls it the blessings of panarchy. Now, he says, whatever complaints we may have about the U.S. Constitution, it's hard not to appreciate this phrase in its preamble. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Now, the problem, of course, he says, is that the word liberty has been so abused that it no longer has a clear meaning. It's used as a hooray for us term and not a great deal more. And he points out here, properly, liberty is a condition in which an individual's will regarding their own person and property are unopposed by any other will. Or in simple speech, it's where we can do whatever we want so long as we don't hurt 
anyone else. Still, he says, I like the phrase in the Constitution, so I'd like to substitute a fresh term, panarchy. So the improved phrase would uh, run like this, to secure the blessings of panarchy to ourselves and our posterity. Now, Paul Rosenberg says that is meaningful, even within the storm of distraction and distortion that is our modern world. So from here, he goes into an explanation of political freedom. And he says, for those of you who are unfamiliar with panarchy, it refers to a condition of live and let live, explicitly including political choices. In other words, panarchy means freedom of choice, including political choice. Now, a condition of panarchy is one where you can choose what kind of government you will be ruled by, or you could choose to be ruled by none at all. That's actual free choice as opposed to the political version of free choice, which means come choose between the options we give you. That one ought to be familiar. (laughs) The truth is that none of us in the modern West enjoys political freedom. Now, we're permitted to fight about the political details, but we're not free to choose ways of life other than the ones provided to us. And it's because of this that political powers blather on and on about liberty because it deflects attention from the true state of affairs. Now, he says, please bear in mind, panarchy and political freedom hearken directly back to John Locke's second treatise on government and his definition of mankind's natural state. Quote, to understand political power aright and derive from its original, derive from it its original, we must consider what a state all men are naturally in, and that is a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they see fit, as they think fit, rather, within the bounds of the laws of nature, without asking leave or depending upon the will of any other man. End quote. Again, these are the words of John Locke. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, look, also bear in mind, this was the foundation of the American Revolution. Among other things, Jefferson held Locke to be one of the three greatest men who ever lived. In fact, Samuel Adams wrote this about John Locke in 1771. Mr. Locke has been often quoted in the present dispute between Britain and her colonies, and very much to our purpose. His reasoning is so forceful that no one has even attempted to disprove it. So what does panarchy look like in practice, you're probably wondering. Well, Paul Rosenberg says panarchy delivers political freedom in addition to physical and economic freedom. Here are the kinds of choices that are available to us all under panarchy. Do you think a constitutional republic is the best model of all human organization? Then he says, great, go ahead, set one up. Well, what if you think a monarchy is best? No problem, set one up, no one will oppose you. Would you prefer a voluntarist arrangement? Paul Rosenberg says, go for it. Want to build an anarcho-syndicalist system? Whether or not most of us think that's a great idea, you remain free to try. There's only one limitation for any set of arrangements, and that is you can't force anyone into your plan. We all remain free to choose with no one forcing or forbidding. Now, of course, the response that many people have been trained to give is, well, that can't work. It really can't work. But Paul Rosenberg says what that really means is I must kill that concept. And he says it's seldom more than a knee-jerk opposition to something taking place outside the status quo. And he says the wild thing about this is that the people who object have no way of knowing that what they're saying is true. Nothing but the system they idolize is permitted, and this has been the case for a long, long time. 
Now, the last time we had a chance to experiment with political freedom in the West was in parts of North America during the 18th and 19th centuries, before alternatives to the system were violently suppressed. And that went pretty well for those who stayed westward of power, even in wild country. As for working out the practical details, well, that's simple enough. The problem is that political types instantly demand a full, foolproof plan covering every detail. And Paul Rosenberg says that's not only silly, but the plan would become obsolete on the second day. The solution, he says, is to simply get out of the way and let people act on their own. That's what free markets do, isn't it? And they usually work quite well. So the demand for a perfect plan in advance is, first of all, impossible. But second of all, it would be almost useless if it were possible. Thirdly, and most directly, he said it's just a delaying tactic. The true purpose of demanding that perfect plan, show me how this would work, is just to freeze people in place. So to get very to the point, he says, panarchy is moral, it's a better model, it delivers actual liberty. Panarchy would secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, and if not perfectly, nothing's going to be perfect at this stage of human development, it would certainly be better than the political systems that killed 262 million people in the 20th century. Now, the bar for panarchy to surpass is frightfully low. And all that really stands in its way, he says, is superstition. By the way, if you wonder about that number, 262 million people killed by political systems, I believe that's accurate. And I believe Professor R.J. Rummel uh, coined the phrase democide, by which he's referring to death by government, to describe how governments, that's just in the 20th century alone, killed 262 million people. Not terrorists, not anarchists, not drug dealers. Governments. Organized violence against targeted groups of people. That's outside of war. We're talking genocides. So pay close attention. There is a lot at stake here. But it's one one of those problems where the solution really is... Let people exercise more freedom. And somehow we've been trained to see that as very dangerous and suspect in our time. Somebody might abuse that freedom. Yes, and what about those who would use it uh, productively? How come we never hear about them? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Yep, these are the folks you want to talk to, not just if you're in St. George or Southern Utah, but if you are looking to secure a home loan, anywhere from a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage, talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage because they can help you anywhere in the state of Utah. Why would you want to talk to them? Well, because Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry, and she really understands what the borrower needs. She understands what the lenders need. She has the clout to put it together and make it happen for you when time is of the essence. And if you've been trying to buy a home, you understand. Time really is of the essence. You do not have time to dilly-dally when it comes to you know, making an offer. You've got to know you've got your financing in order 
today. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Call her at 435-703-4522 or stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. So, look around you and you will notice that people in authority are panicking. And not because of the latest COVID variant, although that is the excuse that they're using, but because they realize their power over the public, their sway over the public, is waning. People are beginning to question. People are beginning to say, wait a minute. Do I really want to go along with this? This is why that media drumbeat of fear is intensifying by the second. Got a great article here from Paul Krause, who makes a very timely plea. Don't let them scare your freedoms away. I like his take on this. He says another new day, another new variant of the coronavirus, another new scare campaign by the tyrannical medical establishment and their media lackeys. By the way, the South African doctor who discovered the Omicron variant says the symptoms are mild. But this hasn't stopped a new fear campaign and overreaction by many governments. Though there is irony in that many who openly endorsed murdering unborn babies are suddenly enthused with such zeal to protect human life in combating COVID. The problem with the new fear campaign over the Omicron variant is the further degradation of liberty and constitutional rights already manifesting because of it. So as the new Cold War with China ratchets up, the Western world has dealt the cards against themselves. The trumpet of freedom and liberty cannot be sounded without charges of hypocrisy and hollowness as we witness the the supposedly free democratic world, especially in places like Australia and New Zealand, not to mention the United Kingdom and, and Europe, engaging in some of the most vicious and tyrannical lockdowns in the world. Now, these lockdowns, restructuring of government power and control over businesses and individuals, aim at one thing, and that is the remaking of our relationship to the state. I think that is possibly the best explanation I have heard yet. I mean, the most succinct explanation. This is about redefining our relationship to the state. And what Paul Krause is saying here is that the totalitarians who've weaponized the coronavirus, what they fail to acknowledge is that they are the ones who politicized the virus, not the conservatives, libertarians, and the few remaining civil liberals concerned with the aggressive, militant overreach of the federal government and medical institutions. He says the new totalitarians assert those of us who wish to keep the flame of liberty and the human spirit alive, they accuse us of politicizing the virus. He says, shame is their calling card. The claim that liberty-loving and defending individuals have weaponized the virus for political purposes does not stand up to scrutiny. Now, those critical of government overreach want to preserve and restore the constitutional liberties and way of life pre-pandemic. It has nothing to do with the coronavirus and everything to do with the basic structure of political society. We've been fighting to maintain the spirit of liberty against the new Bolsheviks before COVID. We remain defending the spirit of liberty against the new Bolsheviks during COVID. And he says, God willing, we'll continue to fight them after COVID. Moreover, he points out, and this is an important point to take away, liberty lost is hard to regain. Now, this is a truism that all liberty-loving people know. So he says, let us look at those conspiracies that turned out to be true. 
concern over the precedent set by national lockdowns were brushed, brushed aside as the talk of radicals. Flatten the curve, the proponents of the lockdown said. Reopen in two weeks, the proponents of the lockdown said. Lockdowns won't happen again, the proponents of the lockdown claimed. Everything will go back to normal, they claimed. Well, it turns out many places have re-entered lockdowns. Not only have they re-entered lockdowns, but the new lockdowns are more draconian than the first. And no critically thinking individual genuinely, genuinely believes that when there's relaxation of lockdowns, if there is, when that begins, that somehow the world re- will return to the same way that it was before in terms of rights and liberty. Governments the world over have revealed their belief that they own you and can and should have control over your life and actions. So concern about creating a second class of citizens because of vaccine mandates, that was cast aside as silly talk. The talk of conspiracy theorists and other nut jobs. Yet we see in Democrat cities and states precisely that. The vaccinated are granted greater rights and privileges than the unvaccinated. Unvaccinated individuals, by contrast, are not only shamed, they're also being completely ostracized in society. Businesses penalize or fire them. You might even become a prisoner in your own home or apartment, as is happening in places like Austria. Some people might even impose their own imprisonment at the indirect advice of government, media, and health officials. Now, Paul Krauss says, concern about the abrogation of basic freedoms and rights we formerly took for granted. Things like the human right to free protest, free worship of religion, free speech, have revealed the totalitarian impulse weaponized by the totalitarians inside our country as well as around the world. So we proclaim the dignity of free speech, of freedom of assembly, and free worship of God. Yet throughout the Western world and in various states in the U.S., the war against free speech, free assembly, and freedom of religion is getting even more aggressive than before. Agents of the state bully church-going congregants and anyone protesting tyrannical government policies. Say or type something that enrages the medical guardians and their digital mobs. Kiss your account goodbye. And for those who've raised issues about the totalitarian power plays by governments and politicians during this now never-ending pandemic, the fight remains the same. Don't let governments discard their own constitutional restraints in the name of public health and safety, the easiest veil for totalitarians to use in their tyrannical lusts in free societies because human nature instinctively wants to be safe. Don't let media and their strong-arm tactics scare you into submission. Don't willingly roll over and hand over your God-given rights and liberties to faceless bureaucrats and scientists. Now, what infuriated the totalitarians who are trying to use COVID as their means to remake society was the fighting back by the people and a few courageous mayors and governors. Now, with this variant of COVID emerging, they'll once again beat this drum of fear to try to scare us into submission and claim that those few politicians who are standing up for liberty and who don't bow to the altar of medical tyranny are reckless, uncaring brutes. Don't let them scare and shame you into surrendering your liberties. His point is totalitarianism doesn't sleep. The new medical communism and fascism that's being pushed by public health experts and their ilk will not rest until they have absolute control over you. So he says we can't let our guard down. 
even if they'll retort with all the usual insults and shaming. We who cherish liberty do not wish any of our fellow citizens to die from the coronavirus. But we also don't wish for that lifeblood of existence, our rights and liberties, to die as well. And the past year and a half has proved we should worry about the erasure of our our political and civil liberties just as we do our personal health. They kind of go hand in hand, truth be told. Got a link to the article in the show notes. Check them out for yourself at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Listen, if you find uh, if you find the content that I share with you useful, two things I want to ask of you. Number one, please consider subscribing. You can just go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. Click the subscribe button. I will email you a copy of my show notes every time that I publish them. And that's uh, usually five times a week, you know, Monday through Friday. I put those show notes out there. This is not the answer to every question that mankind has ever faced. But I spend my days finding and then distributing the very best information, the most solid, the most principled and nonpartisan information that I can get my hands on. And and I do it free of charge. I'm, I'm happy to, to put it there for you. It's for people who want to follow up on these topics and hopefully to, to have the chance to, to get in there and and make up their own minds about what's going on. It's really not that hard. It's really not that difficult of a thing to do. But uh, very few people do it. So if you're one of those who pays the price and is willing to to dig deeper, you know, to go down the rabbit hole, so to speak, and, and to, to do your own research, that's what it's there for. And, and here's the second thing I would ask. Tell a friend. Not everybody's looking for this message, and I get that. I'm not, I'm not offended when people say, no, nah, that's just not for me. But I know there are also people out there who are really sincerely looking for truth and light. And that's, I do my very best to, to share things that, messages and, and articles that have more light than just simply, you know, smoke and thunder. Speaking of thunder, as much as I'm tempted to pound the pulpit and really start thundering, I'm, I'm getting the sense that right now is a time to speak as calmly and as carefully as possible about the latest COVID variant. That's why I'm really grateful for writers like Daisy Luther, who notes that Omicron is a perfectly timed variant to scare the unruly back into submission. Listen to her take on this. She says, all around the world, people are getting fed up with draconian measures undertaken in the name of public safety. And although we're not hearing much about it in the news here in the United States, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even millions, are protesting across the globe even though those protests are putting their very lives at risk. She lists places like Austria, the Netherlands, France, Italy, Croatia, and Australia all have hundreds of thousands of people rising up for freedom. Enter Omicron. No, it's not the new head of the Decepticons. It's the new strain of COVID out of South Africa Africa, that's causing a hullabaloo. Oh, she says, oh, a hat tip to her bestie for the Transformers reference. <laughs> I never thought of that, but it does make sense. So 
Throughout this entire pandemic, she says, I've written from the heart, I've watched the patterns, and shared concerns when I thought that warnings were in order. In fact, Daisy Luther points out that she published their first article about what would soon be known as COVID back on January 22nd of 2020. Every day after that for months, she says, I researched and wrote about the virus and the terrifying power grabs and brainwashing that came with it. Now, here's the thing. As a prepper, she says, I take pandemics seriously. This is something I've prepped for over the course of many years. She wrote about her experience of having COVID when she lived in Mexico. And unlike quite a few others in this industry, she says, I've never denied that the virus exists or that it can be serious. Our family has lost two loved ones to the illness, and I've lost two dear friends as well. So she says, I'm not a COVID denier. I recommended during the early phases that people get prepared for the potential of what she assumed might be a self-imposed lockdown as we all watched and waited to see how things played out. Interestingly enough, this enraged some of her readers, causing some to quit reading the website. Others left were, were left feeling more in control of their situations. But everything she wrote was written using the information that she personally deemed credible that she had available at the time. Then things got crazy. As with anything, once the government steps in to take control of a situation, things tend to go downhill like a silk sled on a greasy slide. We were forced to shut down for just two weeks that ended up turning into months. And she says it was a half-assed lockdown, which has made it utterly pointless. If you're trying to stop a communicable disease, your lockdown is a lockdown completely. Nobody in or out. Now, if you're trying to impoverish a nation and gain total control, well, a half-assed lockdown is just what the doctor, especially one who's going to profit from it, ordered. It allows the illness to spread widely, unchecked, and still overwhelms the medical facilities and other services it promises to protect, while utterly destroying the economy and the personal finances of the American people. Then bring in the lies and division. Masks don't work. Masks work. Everyone must wear a mask. Maybe you should wear two masks. If you don't wear masks, you hate old people. And repeat with the word vaccine instead of mask. So now America's firmly split, and instead of being a public health issue, it's a political issue. Anyway, she says, that's not the point of this article. We all know what happened, and most of us have less faith in government than ever before. But the point is, viruses mutate. In fact, there's a new variant to the COVID virus in the news right now called Omicron. Now, she says, before we get too deep into this variant, let's remember another terrifying variant, Super COVID. Do you remember that? It was going to be the death of us all. The word mutation was bandied about the news like the virus had suddenly grown into the size of a German shepherd and rose to walk around on two legs to get us. But viruses mutate. Now, she says, keep in mind, I'm not a virologist or a medical professional. Neither are the politicians taking advantage of this crisis. The folks pimping big pharma drugs or the journalists writing breathless headlines. Daisy Luther says, I'm just another writer out there reading stuff and trying to figure this out. The same as everyone else. Mutation is a scary word. It brings to mind every sci-fi nightmare brought to life on the big screen of some lab-born creature that gets totally out of control. It makes you think of rats so big you could saddle and ride them. Crazy, terrifying stuff. But viruses mutate. It's the nature of a virus. To survive, unlike plants and other organisms, the only way a virus can reproduce 
is through a host cell, which it does by attaching its surface proteins to the cell's membrane, then injecting its genetic material into the cell. This genetic material, either DNA or RNA, then carries with it the instructions to the cell's machinery to make more viruses. These new viruses then leave the cell and spread to other parts of the host organism. But host organisms are not passive observers to this process. And over time, a human's or a pig's immune system can learn from these encounters and develop strategies to prevent reinfection. So the next time the same virus comes to a host cell, it may find that it's no longer able to attach to the cell's surface membrane. To survive, viruses must adapt or evolve, changing its surface proteins enough to trick the host cell into allowing it to attach. So while the headlines are scary and meant to be, just remember, it's perfectly natural that this virus has changed. And Daisy Luther says a, a mutation isn't necessarily a bad thing. A virus doesn't want to rapidly kill its host because then the virus dies too. So the evolution of a virus can have many different results. It can make the change in symptoms. It can make it more contagious. It can make it more deadly or it can make it milder in order to affect more hosts. Just the fact that the virus mutated is not a death knell. So keep in mind, it's normal. And then along comes Omicron. Just as people were beginning to stand up and fight back to file suits to take back control of their lives, their finances and businesses, along came a mutation from South Africa called Omicron, the one destined to scare us all back into submission. And the news right now is all about the Omicron variant of COVID. She says, I hate to say it, but... (sighs) whatever. It's the worst, the most deadly, the most contagious variant ever. And yes, she's linking to the articles that proclaim it such. Oh, and it's probably vaccine-resistant too. Well, unfortunately for the media, Fauci and those benefiting from lockdowns and vaccines, the scientist who identified the the Omicron variant said, in fact, it's extremely mild. Here's a quote from an article. Contrary to the panic-mongering unleashed by Western mainstream media, Barry Shoeb, chairman of the Ministerial Advisory Committee on Vaccines, told Sky News on Sunday that while South Africa, which first identified the new variant, currently has 3,220 people with the coronavirus infection overall, and while the variant does appear to be spreading rapidly, there's been no real uptick in hospitalizations. Shoeb said the cases that have occurred so far have been mild cases, mild to moderate cases, And that's a good sign, adding that it was still early days and nothing was certain yet. Most importantly, and running counter to the fear-mongering narrative being pumped out 24-7 by mainstream media, Shub said the large number of mutations found in the Omicron variant appears to destabilize the virus, which might make it less less fit than the dominant Delta strain. Okay, this is where we're going to tap the brakes because we were up on a break ourselves. There's more to this article, and I'm going to come back to it here in the next segment. You can also check it out for yourself in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. You might even want to subscribe to Daisy Luther's Organic Prepper website. Lots of great information there. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to send out some love to uh, lifesavingfood.com. That would be the food storage company my friend Kendall Whiting runs, and he has done something so generous for my listeners. I, I don't know that you can appreciate this unless you have been shopping food storage recently and you realize, okay, food everywhere is getting more expensive. In fact, there there are shortfalls sometimes in the supply chain. There have been some delays in getting certain types of food. You probably noticed the price of meats especially is, is going up. Still, it's a very good idea to have these things. And here's here's where Kendall comes through like a knight in shining armor. Because he is a distributor for Ready Wise Foods. And these foods have a nice 25-year shelf life. <clears throat> There's lots of variety to choose from. Different grab-and-go buckets or stackable buckets. You know, you can get as big or as small an order as you would like. But for my listeners, Kendall is saying, you tell them to use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. And I'll give them a 25% discount. That's better than you would get if you went to ReadyWise directly. It's a great deal. And I hope you'll take advantage of it. I hope you'll consider it maybe even for gift-giving needs this year. Give people food storage. Give them things that will give them a better place to stand, a more firm piece of ground upon which to stand as the world moves forward. You'll find a link in the show notes for lifesavingfoods.com. Use that coupon code HIDE to claim your 25% discount. I've been sharing this article from Daisy Luther about the Omicron variant. And the last thing we talked about in the last segment was how <clears throat> the experts or the, the leaders in uh, South Africa, where this variant was discovered, say that uh, <clears throat> it's actually a fairly mild virus, but from what they can tell. And it may be less fit than the dominant Delta strain, to which Daisy responds, well, that's certainly inconvenient. Governments are losing all that delicious control they've grown so fond of, and they don't like it. So she suggests, watch what you actually see and pay less attention to the breathless news reports on this one. She says, I'm very skeptical about it. Remember, I'm not a COVID doesn't exist person. She says, I've had it and it sucked. But this? Well, Daisy Luther says, I'm thoroughly unconvinced that this is going to be the one that gets us all unless we roll up our sleeves yet again for the latest and greatest from Pfizer and friends. Now, she says, I could be wrong. This could end up being the most serious thing since smallpox or the Black Plague. I'm not suggesting you completely ignore it. Her point is to be watchful. And if you think things look bad, then take the appropriate steps. You're a prepper after all. But the information she has currently doesn't indicate that this is the threat that it's being portrayed as in the media. We'll just have to see what happens. Oh, and about the name Omicron. She points out how, incidentally, the World Health Organization skipped around some letters of the Greek alphabet to come up with Omicron. The World Health Organization explained why it skipped the Greek letters NU, N-U, and G, X-I, in naming the uh, COVID-19 variant Omicron. <clears throat> Two letters were skipped because NU and G, uh, were, one, one was easily confounded with the word NU, N-E-W, and G was not used because it's a common surname, ha, wink, wink, and the World Health Organization best practices for naming a new disease suggests avoid causing offense to any cultural, social, national, regional, professional, or ethnic groups. That's what the UN agency told the Epic Times in a statement on November 27th. It also happens to be the, uh, you know, name of the uh, leader of the Chinese Communist Party. Just saying, you know, maybe Winnie the Pooh's not really fond of 
you know, having his name attached to a virus that uh, coincidentally came from China. Wow. What a thought. Professor Jonathan Turley, a criminal attorney and professor at George Washington University, speculated the World Health Organization is again avoiding any discomfort for the Chinese government in skipping the Xi letter and naming it uh, Omicron. The new variant was supposed to be new, NU, but any additional variant would then be Xi, which is uh, just happens to be the name of the Chinese litter, leader. Rather, Sorry, that was a really bad Freudian, Freudian script there. Can we all just give it a rest, says Daisy Luther, and admit China owns the World Health Organization and get on with our pandemic, please? And she poses a couple of questions here. What do you think about the Omicron variant? Do you think this new and scary variant is is everything it's cracked up to be? Do you think it'll lead to worsening illnesses? Or are you more concerned that it will lead to more overreach? She invites you to leave your thoughts in the comments. Look, I don't know. I don't know how seriously to take this. I do know this. Whatever trust I may have once had... In, uh, in our media or in most of the political leadership, not just in this country, but everywhere, it's gone. I have no trust for, for, these, for the media organizations. I have no trust for the people in authority who are scrambling to take advantage of our uncertainty. And, you know, it's, it's hard to, to say this because, you know, people will, what if you're wrong? Well, there is a possibility I could be wrong. But see, that's the difference between me and both the media as well as the people who are clamoring for more authority. They can't admit they're wrong. And that should tell you something, because they're human beings. They're, they're just like you and me. They're not made from finer clay, as, as uh, Bastiat would say. They're just as prone to being wrong. And I don't know why people are so intent on, but we have to believe them. We have to believe. Trust the science! Follow the science, you know, and then it starts saying, well, what is this, a new religion? Should we be chanting in unison or something? I mean, come on, help me out here. I think more than anything, what this illustrates is something which I'm certain some of you have figured out, maybe most of you figured out over the last couple of years. But it's simply this, if you want to be informed, if you want to know what's going on in the world around you, you are the one who's going to have to step up and be your own fact checker. Well, I'm not a virologist. You don't have to be. Because the whole world isn't defined just by virology. All you need to do is understand what are correct principles. What principles have stood the test of time? And are they being violated in order to address this or not? That's really what it comes down to. I mean, come on, the world has faced some pretty dangerous stuff. Okay, the Black Plague, Ebola, wars, and so forth. The key here is don't be buffaloed into giving up your autonomy. Be willing to to think things through. Be willing to sort that fact from fiction. And here's the hardest part. Be willing to trust yourself. I'm not trying to make anybody uncomfortable when I suggest this, but um, experience has shown me and, and just reinforce this over and over in the last few years. If you sincerely want to know where you stand, I think there is no greater source that you can turn to than God. And if you don't believe in God, you know, even, even my friends who say, well, I don't really know. I don't, be- I don't know for sure that there is a God. What am I supposed to do? They still have an innate sense of right and wrong. 
Their moral compass will tell them, hey, you're getting off course, and they recognize that. So whatever that is, however the universe tells you when you are, you know, off course or you get that feeling like I really shouldn't be doing this, pay attention to that. If you're a believer, um, it's, it's really as simple as just humbling yourself and, and asking God for direction, asking God for help, asking for understanding. How about this? Asking for protection. Do you believe a God that created the entire universe could protect you if you were to ask? Now, I'm not going to guarantee you, therefore, you know, nothing bad will ever happen to you again. Look, we live in a world that is governed by rules and laws that unfortunately uh, dictate that every person who's born into this world will die. Everybody. Nobody escapes it. But I can tell you from personal experience, if you are putting your trust in things other than simply what this politician is saying or this media figure is saying or even what I'm saying, I may be sincere and you may feel like, Brian, I've got a camaraderie with you. I I feel like I can trust what you're saying. I could still be wrong. It's far more important that you pick up that ball and run with it and you determine for yourself, is this right or isn't it? I'm not insisting that I see you in Sunday school next Sunday. Come on, yeah, chop, chop, 10 o'clock sharp. We're going to be there. I'm just suggesting that uh, there's a resource that's available to us that often gets overlooked. And when, if I could really just be blunt, when it comes down to it, the most important decisions that I've had to make in my life are those that I have uh, first consulted with my creator before I made those decisions. And I've made plenty of mistakes in my life, and I've chosen poorly many a time in my life. But those times where I have sought advice from the divine and then followed that advice have always turned out to be the right thing to do, even if sometimes it was the hard thing to do. That's a tough thing to explain because it's a very personal thing, and I can't tell you. It's a cookie-cutter thing. Everybody gets the same result, the same answer. All I can tell you is that's that's a source that you can actually trust. And if you've been figuring that out, keep after it. If it's time to see for yourself, find out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You probably already have realized the battle for your mind, it's a real thing. I'm not here to claim it in the name of the Queen. I'm here to encourage you to stand up and claim your mind as your own. Meaning, you think things through, you decide what you believe, and you do not hang on anybody's words, mine or anyone else. You are willing to pay the price to be a free thinker, a wrong thinker if necessary, and to challenge those narratives out there that are telling you it's got to be this way. I have some great sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. They include Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also in St. George, HSLAmmo.com, 
lifesavingfood.com and monticellocollege.org. And here's one that you haven't heard much about, but I would encourage you, if you are looking for an alternative, like really taking ownership of your income, go to governyouryoncome.com. In a nutshell, this is a company that will train you how to do day trading in the foreign currency exchange markets. That's the Forex markets. Be worth your while to, to check this out. They will train you, and they will actually give you company money to use to, to help build your own income as you go. And it's something that can be done anywhere that you have an Internet signal. So if you felt the pressure of mandates, you either get the shot or you lose your job, how about you work for yourself? This may be the right fit for you or for somebody who you know. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, governyourincome.com. So I have, a, I have an essay I want to share with you that is likely to make some people super uncomfortable. And I'm going to start with this one instead of saving it for the very end because, well, it's, it's kind of like ripping the Band-Aid off. Let's, let's get this out of the way early on. This is from Margaret Anna Alice. I discovered her Substack just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it's it's uh, Margaret Anna Alice through the Looking Glass. That's the, that's the name of her st- Substack, and it's a letter to an agree to disagree relative. But I don't know that I've ever seen anybody put the the things that are at stake in more clear contrast. And this this might be a tad strident for you. You know, you might you might feel like, oh boy, this is this is really pushing hard. But I don't think she's wrong. You know, it's it's th- what I'm going to share with you is going to make some people really uncomfortable. It actually made me hold my breath, and I agree with most everything she's saying here. But you should listen to what she has to say, even if it makes you want to squirm and look away. Margaret Anna Alice says, Imagine the Holocaust is happening again, only this time it's on a planetary scale. And there aren't any allies coming to the rescue because they're just as guilty as the Axis. She actually has a couple of, she has actually a YouTube video in which a Holocaust survivor is is being interviewed. And, And people who have lived under real tyranny, real totalitarianism, when they speak up, I tend to pay attention to what they're saying. I think, you know, what do they have to gain by sharing, you know, their scary stories? Maybe they have some experience that uh, not very many other people have. Maybe we ought to listen. Margaret Ann Alice says, Now, imagine you have incontrovertible proof, and she has links to everything she's saying here, that mass extermination is occurring, that it's been devised by megalomaniacal, self-styled gods, patented and formulated by pharmaceutical megacorporations, imposed by governments or else, and official agencies implemented by hospitals, doctors, and the medical community, and covered up, by mainstream media and big tech. Now, within that one paragraph, I count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven different hyperlinks that will take you to examples of what she's talking about here. And I'm not, I'm not trying to brag. I'm just telling you, she, this isn't just you know her her wild eyed interpretation. She's she's taking you to sources that can back up what she's suggesting. Now, she says, imagine people are telling you that sharing evidence of this atrocity is making them uncomfortable. They want to change the subject. They want to agree to disagree. 
So how would you feel when you're doing everything in your power to prevent more human beings from being massacred? And most people don't want to hear about it, don't want to think about it, don't even want to consider the snowballing scientific data because it contradicts the worldwide propaganda campaign being scripted by the very entities committing these crimes against humanity. Now she comes right out and says, I know that sounds hyperbolic. That's what the purveyors of the biggest lie in history in world history count on. It's too titanic. It's too ridiculous to be believed. And all of their mouthpieces tell you so. They tell you we're anti-vaxxers. They tell you we're conspiracy theorists. They tell you we're spreading misinformation. They'll tell you we're right-wing extremists, deplorables, Trump voters. And they tell you not to listen to us. They tell you we can't be trusted. They tell you they are your single source of truth. Now, Margaret Anna Alice says, look, I know genocide or genocide, or in this case, democide, isn't a topic you bring up in polite conversation. But she says, I'm not polite. Because being polite when you know people are being medically liquidated makes you an accomplice to murder, and I will not go gentle into that bad night. I know you're not supposed to say, pass the butter, and oh, have you heard about the millions of people who suffered excruciating lifelong injuries, or the hundreds of thousands, at least 150,000 in the U.S. alone, who have been lethally injected by Big Pharma, and those colluding in the execution and cover-up of this depopulation campaign? And how about that totalitarian, totalitarianism spreading around the globe from like, hmm, I don't know, a highly contagious virus? She says, or did you hear about Dr. Fauci funding savage experiments on beagles where the sadists slashed the vocal cords so they wouldn't be annoyed by the dog's screams while their faces were being devoured by sandflies until they died? Oh, and what about all those cases of post-injection myocarditis, pericarditis, cardiac events, strokes, stillborn deaths, newborn deaths, and the nearly million adverse event reports, including 18,853 deaths through November 12th of 2021 in VARES alone. Why do you think the media didn't tell you about any of those injuries and deaths? Weird, right? Incidentally, did you know that all those people who died from COVID could have been saved if early treatment protocols like ivermectin had been promoted or even permitted? And inventor interventions like remdesivir and midazolam and eventilation had been prohibited? She asks, isn't it strange that Israel the country with the fastest mass vaccination rate in the world is witnessing spiking mortality rates all among the vaccinated. And she says, I wonder why they had to agree not to disclose the terms of their contract with Pfizer for a decade. Wouldn't it be bitterly ironic if the Israeli government became complicit in the genocide of its own people? Speaking of Pfizer, she says, why do you think the FDA asked a federal judge to give Pfizer till 2076 to release its vaccine data. Don't you think they'd want to share proof for their claims of safety and efficacy with scientists if they have so much confidence in their product? Isn't it odd how the entire world fell under a spell simultaneously after being subjected to a comprehensive fear campaign and then suddenly forgot about concepts like natural immunity or hard scientific data, freedom of speech, individual rights, and the hazards of authoritarianisms, authoritarianism rather. Now, she says, I realize we had relatives at Auschwitz, and some people think it's insensitive to draw comparisons between the World War II Holocaust and the new Holocaust. 
But she says, I, however, consider it a contemptuous insult to the memories of those who endured discrimination, incarceration, starvation, torture, and slaughter to fail to heed the burning message of never again. And Holocaust survivors like Marianne von Rosen, Marianne Turksy, Turksky, Turksky rather, and Vera Sharov agree. So she says, this is not a matter of opinion. This is a matter of fact. So no, I cannot agree to disagree about the pharmacide of millions, and I will not remain silent. She says, I encourage you to assess the evidence presented here and throughout my blog to get up to speed on the objective reality that's been obscured from you by the propagandists. And then when you're ready, she says, come join me in speaking out against the murder of our people, all people. Now, I've got a link to this, and I'll encourage you, please, take a look for yourself. Look, I get it. You know, are you trying to say, is she saying that uh, she believes that the vaccine is part of some worldwide mass extermination event? It sure sounds like it, doesn't it? Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I look, I don't want to believe it, mainly because I have about half of my family members who have taken the vaccine. And I can assure you, I will be one ticked-off individual if they start experiencing health problems or start dying like flies, you know, a short time down the road. I do know that there's something very suspicious about the fervency and the aggressive way that these vaccines are being pushed. That's what sets off my red flags. That's what gets me going, ooh, there's danger here. So this is just another viewpoint to consider, and you can find it in my show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm very ashamed to admit this, but uh, but I'm going to admit it just because you need to know that, uh, yeah, I don't walk on water. In fact, uh, truth be told, I'm not spending all of my spare time teaching crippled children to walk. And the story about me saving that uh, that busload of uh, nuns that was on fire, that might have been exaggerated just a little bit. Uh, I may have just actually seen that on a TV show. Now, my point is, we all have things about ourselves of which we're not really proud. One of my least favorite bad habits is that I swear. Now, I usually only do this when I'm under pressure, but, uh, man, I do not like it. And after I read Annie Holmquist's latest essay on pushing the pause button on profanity, I come away feeling even more more resolved. I've got to do better. But she's got a point here. Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, says, While out on an evening walk in a local park, I heard a fellow walker coming down the path behind me talking on his phone. Now, she says his tone was even keeled and calm, but she said it seemed like every fifth word was an expletive uttered in the same calm manner. And she says, I cite this incident not because it's out of the ordinary, but because it is, in fact, very ordinary. Seems like one can't go through a day or even an hour without hearing someone use words related to bodily functions or religious terminology in an angry, flippant, or even nonchalant way. What was once the vocabulary of sailors not to be uttered in a lady's presence is now what spews from many mouths, including female ones. She says the mainstreaming of profanity and the implications that it brings is disturbing on many levels. 
But despite this, I was recently struck by how those who want to advance the good, the true, and the beautiful can combat this trend and even turn the situation into an encouraging endeavor. So the idea that profanity has increased in the world is not just a figment of imagination, says Annie Holmquist. According to a 2017 study headed by psychologist Jean Twenge, books published in the mid-2000s were 28 times more likely to contain a list of seven specific swear words than they were in the 1950s. Now, in all likelihood, the same can go for movies and television as well. To test this, she says all one has to do is pull up a modern movie and time how long one can watch without hearing profanity. She says, if I were a betting girl, I would wager a person couldn't get through five minutes of a film, and that might be generous. So this increase suggests several things, the first of which is a decline in intelligence. Now, those who approve of vulgarities are fond of touting studies showing, well, the opposite is true. Namely, highly intelligent people are capable of a wide range of colorful profanities and don't have poverty of vocabulary. However, true intelligence includes tactful awareness. And as an article in Scientific American explains, studies suggesting that swearing is a sign of heightened intelligence tell us nothing about how speakers use taboo words, just what they would be capable of saying if they chose to use them. And as such, she says those with greater verbal fluency may actually swear less because they, because they have the lexical database required to actually express themselves in other ways. So as we hear our profanity quotient is increasing, it seems probable to suggest that vocabulary and knowledge are decreasing. Secondly, she says, profanity shows the state of our innermost being. And although vulgarity is now offered casually, it often comes hand in hand with anger. This fact is most easily seen in the expletives regularly leveled at today's leaders, regardless of party. Now, the fact that these expletives are also often sexual in nature may lead, lend insight into anger expressed through profanity, for lust, desire, and pornography usage are often at the root of angry tirades. A wise old book tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Well, if such is the case... Does it not seem that the heightened profanity is a sign of an angry and lustful national character? Ooh. I don't disagree with her, though. Finally, today's high level of profanity is something that, used, that is used to take down our country. In 1958, W. Cleon 40 listed 45 goals the communists had in hopes of eventually overthrowing America in his book, The Naked Communist. Number 25 on that list reads, quote, Break down cultural standards of morality by promoting pornography and obscenity in books, magazines, motion pictures, radio, and TV. End quote. Simple walk down the street in a profanity-laced culture could demonstrate that this goal has been accomplished. Yet this review of facts isn't to make us depressed that we have a dumb, angry country that's occupied by the enemy ideology of communism. She says, in fact, it gives us a small glimpse of one thing that we have control over in this out-of-control country, and that is ourselves. So here's her solution. When average individuals despairingly wonder what they can do to make a difference and save our flailing country, one thing that any person can do is clean up his own mouth. Anger, frustration, and baseness don't have to come out through our words. They don't have to dwell in our minds either, and one good way to boot them out of the mind is to not listen to them. So turn off that TV, radio program, or movie that freely throws profanity around. 
That's a good start. Annie Holmquist says, reclaiming our country starts small. Let's start that small effort by watching what comes out of our own mouths. I think that's pretty good advice. I'm thinking back to a few years ago. Um, St. George, Utah was uh, was hosting, and I'm, I'm really sorry, the artist's name now actually uh, escapes me. I know his big song was Thrift Store, and it was a big deal. This guy had agreed to come and to do a concert at, uh, what was at the time, I think Dixie State College. It may, be, it may have been Dixie State University by then, but um, he was an up-and-coming singing artist, and he hit it big, but he'd already made this commitment to come and perform this this concert in St. George, and by then he was just, you know, he was hot stuff, you know, appearing on Saturday Night Live and, you know, very, very big. But when he came, I remember some friends of mine who lived close to the uh, the Dixie State campus who said, it, you know, the profanity. When, the first thing, one of the things that the guy was told was, hey, look, you know, watch your language while you're doing your concert here. So the first thing he did when he got up was just, F word, you know, screaming it. <clears throat> and the crowd was going nuts. But my friend and his wife with small children said it was so bad in their home, just a block or two away from, you know, the the athletic field where this event was being held. They said that even in their home, you could not get away from the the shouted, amplified profanity that this guy was was belting out along with his music. In fact, it was so bad, they actually had to get in their cars and, and they had to go and drive. They just had to take the kids somewhere, anywhere else because even in their own home, they weren't safe from it. And it was so interesting to see the reaction that people had. Well, you know, it's time that uh, this corner of Utah, this this Mormon-infested red part of the state is, you know, they got to get with the times, man. This is, this is the 20th century. As if, you know, this is a pinnacle of civilization and you guys are rejecting something that is great and that makes humanity better. Really? Really? Having a mouth like a sewer actually is, is the pinnacle of human development? Yeah, I'm not buying it. And look, I understand it. Well, Brian, didn't you just say you swear to? I do. So if that makes me a hypocrite. But here's the thing. As bad as I hate that habit of swearing, I'm also very, very conscious of who I'm around. And, and you know, if there if there is anybody around who might possibly be offended, out of courtesy for them, I'm not going to do it. Not because I'm just that good, but because, really, I do have respect for them. I just, I just have a hard time accepting the idea that, yeah, filthy language, why, that, uh, you know, that's, a, that's a sign of our ascendancy as a culture. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's the sign of, uh, you know, primitive, uh, you know, devolving culture. But we're expected to believe that no, no, no. That's that's what you have to do, and you got to get out of that uh, that religious mindset, and you know all those things that came before. Okay, then. I like how the Southerners put it. Well, bless your heart. <laughs> Anybody who's been in the South will understand. That's uh, that's a very polite way to to say. Well, to say what I'm not going to say. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. 
Well, I'm going to I'm going to take a a little spin down memory lane, so to speak, and actually I'm going to return to a subject that I, I thought I had left behind for good, but this was such a great article. I thought I got to share this. And yes, it's it's related to Kyle Rittenhouse. Now, you know, like most people who weren't looking for an excuse to riot or to run feral, I was actually relieved when Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted. I also saw that there were some very important lessons to be learned from his experience, and one of the biggest ones is outlined by an attorney by the name of George Perry, who warns Kyle and the rest of us about the dangers that he still faces. It's an article titled Kyle's, Kyle Rittenhouse's Reputation. It's from knowledgeisgood.net. Again, these are the words of George Perry, who says, When I started practicing law in 1970, my father-in-law, an enormously effective and successful litigator with a leading New England white shoe firm, gave me a short lecture on the duty that I would owe to future clients. And George Perry says, since he was the smartest and scariest man I had or have ever known, I listened very carefully. First and foremost, he explained, a lawyer owes his client the unvarnished truth. I was admonished to always tell the client the strengths and weaknesses of the case and spell out the pros and cons of taking any particular course of action. Now, the client may not like hearing the bad news or a pessimistic opinion about the merits of the case, but must nevertheless be fully informed so that he or she can make an intelligent and reasoned decision about the proposed course of action. Now, this rule, he stressed, must be followed, even if it means losing the client. So he says, throughout my law practice, I tried as best I could to follow my father-in-law's advice. And sure enough, on many occasions over the past 50-plus years, I lost clients because I wouldn't tell them what they wanted to hear. Now, he says, when I wrote my latest article about Kyle Rittenhouse, published yesterday by the American Spectator and set forth below, I tried to give a realistic assessment of the risks he would face should he become a plaintiff in a suit for defamation. But as I hit the send button, I expected that many of the hardcore, meat-eating keyboard warriors out there among Amspec's devoted readers would reject the article out of hand. And he says, and it turned out to be right. Take, for example, this reader's comment. Thank you, Mr. Perry, for outing yourself, and welcome to the club of George Will, Andrew Napolitano, Carl Rove, Frank Lunds, and others who are proudly ignorant and continue to eliminate any doubt by expressing themselves. And George Perry says, wow, I ought to be insulted as the reader intended. But frankly, being lumped in with George Will and Carl Rove makes me feel more like Wayne and Garth when they met Alice Cooper in this scene from Wayne's World. We got to get going. No, no, no. Stick around. Hang out with us. Cool. Yeah, we'll stay and hang around with us. With Alice Cooper. We're not worthy! We're not worthy! We're not worthy! We're stuck! We suck! <laughs> okay, well, point taken. Now, he says, on the other hand, not all the negative, not all the reaction was negative. He says, consider this reader's comment. Well said. I practiced law for over 30 years, and though I was never in George Perry's league as a litigator, I saw and heard enough in those years to know for certain that every word Perry has written is true. Stay away, Kyle. The sharks are out to get you, and even the thinnest trickle of blood will send them into a frenzy. Don't give it to them. So George Perry says, okay, enough for the re- for the reviews. Take a look at the article. Decide for yourself whether my free advice to young Kyle is worth the fee charged. 
He starts with a quote from Ray Donovan, which some of you may remember as a former Reagan administration labor secretary following his acquittal on corruption charges. The quote is, which office do I go to to get my reputation back? And then he has another uh, thing here in italics, an old litigator's definition of courthouse, a place where people go to tell lies. Now, George Perry says ever since Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted on all charges, there has been a rising chorus calling on him to sue his detractors for defamation. For example, before the prosecution's meritless and unfounded case disintegrated at trial, Joe Biden condemned Rittenhouse as a white supremacist while media commentators falsely accused him of crossing state lines with an illegally possessed AR-15 rifle to wantonly gun down protesters who were engaged in what CNN so laughably called a fiery but mostly peaceful protest in the burned and pillaged Kenosha, Wisconsin. But even now, after the truth has been made abundantly clear at trial, various media commentators continue to spread the thoroughly debunked lie that Kyle Rittenhouse was a bloodthirsty vigilante who, weirdly enough, killed and wounded white people in pursuit of a white supremacist agenda. In short, Rittenhouse has been and continues to be the victim of a campaign of blatantly outrageous lies waged by those who seek to punish and destroy him in the name of social justice. So how can he fight back? What can he do to expose the lies and defend his reputation? Now, Rittenhouse probably helped himself when he was interviewed by Tucker Carlson on Fox News. He was articulate and gave reasoned and thoughtful answers to Carlson's sympathetic questions. While he will never be able to win over his closed-minded detractors, George Perry says, My sense is that his rational and well-spoken demeanor surprised and impressed many people who had made unwarranted assumptions about his intelligence and reasons for voluntarily responding to the destructive Kenosha rioting. Since then, he's done another televised interview by Ashley Banfield on News Nation Now and appears to be on track to continue speaking out publicly. But he warns, while all of this may enhance his reputation, it is not without risk. And here's why. Rittenhouse testified under oath at trial. Now, it should be assumed that, assumed rather that the stumble bum and ethically challenged prosecutors who belly flopped on the national stage are looking to redeem themselves by taking another crack at Rittenhouse. And while these humiliated prosecutors can't appeal his acquittal, they could use any deviations between his testimony under oath and his interview statements as a pretext for perjury or false swearing charges. Now, while it's almost unheard of for prosecutors to charge a defendant for testifying falsely in his own defense at trial, such charges are not legally prohibited. And, of course, there has been nothing routine about the circumstances and passions surrounding the Rittenhouse case. He is a marked man who, as the deranged, as far as the deranged left is concerned, is uh, just got away with murder. So it's the same media that falsely smeared him in the first place that would happily cheer on any effort by prosecutors to bring new charges in state court, just as those same media are demanding the U.S. Department of Justice investigate and charge him under federal law. Now, it must be noted that nobody, no matter how honest, candid, or sincere, ever tells the same story the same way twice. There's always some omission, deviation, or change from one telling to another. Now, that's just human nature. But that purely human tendency could yield what would appear to be material contradictions to Rittenhouse's in-court testimony. So it is that each answer to each interview question can be likened to the pull of a trigger in the game of Russian roulette. 
he's playing a game that could have a disastrous outcome. So if Rittenhouse continues to be interviewed under favorable and friendly conditions by persons such as Carlson, who mean him no harm, maybe he can avoid getting himself into a jam. But if he winds up being intensively interrogated under oath about each and every facet, nook and cranny of his young life by a skilled and hostile cross-examiner armed with a file that contains a detailed and thorough summary of every one of his social, religious, and public associations, activities, beliefs, utterances, emails, letters, school essays, diary entries, social media posts, cell phone and computer contents, school and employment records, and pictures from birth to present day, well, yeah, that sounds pretty risky. And what if that experienced cross-examiner intensively interrogated Rittenhouse under oath about every allegation, accusation, anecdote, rumor, smear, or fabrication ginned up by the media, federal, state, or local law enforcement, or even by surprise witnesses who appeared out of nowhere to settle old scores or otherwise embarrass and harm him. Think of the tearful and quaking lawyer Brett Kavanaugh trying to defend himself against allegations of rape before the Senate Judiciary Committee. How well do you think that the callow 18-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse would hold up under such an assault by a seasoned litigator? Now, he says, I don't conjure up this nightmare scenario out of thin air. Over 50 years as a trial lawyer, I've seen plaintiffs, plaintiffs rather in defamation cases subjected to just that kind of legally sanctioned destruction by smart lawyers. It's what can happen when a plaintiff puts his reputation in issue by bringing a defamation case. Once he does that, everything he has said, ever, or thought, or done, becomes fair game because that is the stuff of reputations. Now, I'm going to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on our own break, but man, look, I'll admit, it's, it's frustrating to me, just not so much because, hey, I'm buds with Kyle and I don't like seeing my dude being harshed on by the media. I did cheer on the idea that, yeah, he ought to sue them back to the Stone Age. He ought to be up there with Nick Sandman and, uh, you know, own most of CNN. But I think this attorney, George Perry, has some really solid advice here. And it's probably a good thing for us to learn from as well. Heaven forbid, you know, we ever find ourselves in a similar situation to Kyle's. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you find value in this program, if there's something about this show that you find, uh, you know, worthwhile and redeeming, there is something that you can do for me, and it would be greatly appreciated. There are folks who are doing this right now, but consider becoming a regular supporter of the show. It could be five bucks a month. I, I will just tell you that um, I have a handful of supporters who have been kind enough to, to do this on an ongoing basis. I love them and I appreciate them, but mostly what I appreciate is this gives me the chance to focus my efforts more completely on finding and disseminating the very best information I can find uh, rather than having to run off and go work another, uh, you know, shift down at the Quickie Mart to, to keep the wolves away from the door. So if, if it's something that uh, that sounds feasible to you, go to my website, 
You'll see there's a couple of different ways that you can you can access, you know, becoming either a, a patron of this program or or just uh, becoming a regular supporter. But uh, thank you, first of all, for listening. And, and secondly, thank you so much for uh, for being a part of uh, of my support group that helps keep me on the air. I'm sharing this article from an, a lawyer by the name of George Perry about Kyle Rittenhouse's reputation. And while I admit, yeah, I looked at uh, the prospect of he ought to sue the crap out of everybody who called him a white supremacist, I still think they were wrong. But there is a risk that comes in Kyle Rittenhouse going after them for defamation, and that is because his reputation is going to be on trial as well. And as George Perry points out, if discovery in the defamation case and Rittenhouse's answers under oath and deposition turn up any damaging material, not only could it uh, you know, thwart his defamation case, but it could also lead to further criminal charges. Given that Rittenhouse is anathema to the leftists who infest our government and media, he says, I could even see law enforcement and the media working together with the defense counsel to defeat his defamation case and to obtain evidence in civil discovery to prove him guilty in a future criminal case. Yeah, I think he's right. People hate Kyle Rittenhouse that bad. I mean, come on. He was enrolled in online classes at Arizona State University. And and there were people lobbying, get him off of He can't learn. He can't acquire knowledge from this institution. Rawr, rawr, white supremacist, murderer. So, yeah. There's there's a lot of hostility out there. His His best bet would be to lay low for a while. And, of course, he could also face perjury charges, points out George Perry. Uh, Rittenhouse could face perjury charges should a prosecutor decide that he testified untruthfully in civil deposition as he was being taken through a hostile review of his entire life. He says Rittenhouse has quite properly been found not guilty of criminal charges, but that only means the prosecution failed to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, period, full stop. The verdict in his favor does not legally or otherwise translate into his full vindication of all wrongdoing by the jury, nor is it positive proof that he could use in support of a civil claim for defamation. To prevail in such a case, he would have to prove by a preponderance of the evidence each and every element of his defamation claim, and even then, he would have to prove by a preponderance of the evidence the damages to which he would be entitled. Now, the likelihood of Rittenhouse being able to prove defamation and recover meaningful damages will be the subject of another article. But he says, for now, let me close this part of the discussion by addressing all of you who are so eagerly urging Rittenhouse to sue the media and to sue Joe Biden. He says, your outrage is understandable. I share it. What the vindictive and lying media and Biden have done to this young man is despicable. But we are not the ones whose lives and futures will be at stake if Kyle Rittenhouse goes after his detractors. He's the one who is at risk and will have to undergo the unrelenting stress, effort and anguish of pursuing civil litigation against media and political defendants with vast financial and legal resources. Which is why it's so important that this young man be fully advised of the potential pitfalls, costs and benefits so that he may make a fully informed decision about whether or not to pick a fight that he might might well live to regret. Now again, George Perry is a former federal and state prosecutor. He's a retired civil litigator and criminal defense lawyer. And he blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. I've got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. 
Yeah, you know, I, I have such a mixed feeling. I'm grateful for attorneys, principled attorneys who can stand up and, and make the difference when it needs to be made. But sometimes I think law has become so complicated and so weaponized that it's, it's, it's pretty risky. It's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to use. When it's used correctly and when justice prevails, that's a good thing. But the complexity of the legal system and the risks that come sometimes make that uh, not a very safe bet to put it mildly. Okay, one final note here is, as we wrap things up. Um, the idea that the U.S. is becoming more like the former Soviet Union, while Russia, on the other hand, appears to be reclaiming its Christian heritage, that's a difficult thought for some people to consider. Got an article here from Anthony Esselin pointing out some of the hard truths about how our enemies wait as we destroy ourselves. Let's we'll share a couple of quick excerpts here. The, the sub-headline, by the way, Russia waits, no longer ideological, but moving slowly and gingerly toward the Christian heritage that once made her a nation, even as we stupidly toss our own culture away. Just so you know, he's not, he's not singing the praises of, of Russia so much as warning us, you're turning into what Russia used to be, the, the old Soviet Union. He starts with a question, is the United States becoming like the old Soviet Union in a way that people fail to see? Because of the noise and distractions of electoral politics, mass entertainment masking as news, and mass indoctrination masking as entertainment? This is the key thing here. He says, we are becoming a meritocracy that punishes merit and rewards folly. We all have the disutility of a meritocracy. We have all the disutility of a meritocracy, the snobbishness, the relentless ambition, the inclination to see merit only in what can be measured or paid for. Even the tendency to pull intelligent people out of their native regions and set them down like gilded tumbleweeds in places without memory or character. But he says we get none of the benefits. We punish truth-telling and intelligence and we reward stupidity. We are an idiocracy. By the way, if you haven't seen Mike Judge's movie by that same name, you are missing a tremendous opportunity. The language is harsh in some places. The, The humor is crude. The point, though, is as well taken as anything that you will see. Now, going back to the article, he says, Perhaps I'm being a bit unfair to the Soviets. After all, they still had the Bolshoi, the Bolshoi Ballet. The uh, Soviets didn't bury all their great novelists, and you wouldn't win any points sneering at Tolstoy, as you might now in the United States, if you sneered at writers like Herman Melville or Nathaniel Hawthorne or Mark Twain. He says, I'm looking at a photograph of a Russian sports parade in Moscow. In front are some hundreds of skinny teenage boys stripped to the waist, wearing boxing gloves, and looking as if they are ready to take on the world from Mother Russia and beat it to a pulp. They want to win. Young Dragos, I would guess, huh? The Soviet system, he says, was stupid because it was untrue to the world and to the nature of man. Therefore, it often did punish merit and reward the dull, according to its own woke, woke ideology. Soviets ridiculed the Big Bang Theory, calling it Jewish science because it was in accord with Jewish and Christian belief in a created universe. The Soviets sent Solzhenitsyn to the Gulag while the bloated and plotting Linoid Brezhnev writing his memoirs of some minor campaigns in World War II and making the battles out to be some combination of Waterloo, Hastings, Tours, and Teutoburg Forest won the Lenin Prize for Literature. He says stupidity isn't just stupid, it can also be deadly. And in the case of the Soviet Union, many millions of people died not for a truth, but from patent falsehoods. 
And he says, I sometimes wonder how many American men have suffered loss of life or limb because our armed services are committed to unreality, sending into battle women who lack the strength, the agility, and the speed of teenage boys. Now, what can cause you to fail to recognize or reward merit? He says, three things as I see them. The first is that you're stupid. You don't know what you're evaluating. Some perennial losers in professional sports suffer from flat dullness or blindness. From 1985 to 1989, the NFL's Cardinals had tight end Jay Novacek and somehow missed the man's ability. He started only six games for them while the team went 28-50-1 without a single winning season. Novacek joined the Cowboys in 1990 and the team made him their starter. In the next six seasons, he went to the Pro Bowl five times, won three Super Bowl rings. Jay Novacek had a half of a Hall of Fame career. Now, the second thing he says is people insist on procedure rather than results. The third cause is to focus on something that's beside the point. I don't have time to go into the details here, but I have a link to the article. It's well worth your time, and it may raise a few eyebrows. Really, are we becoming more like the Soviet Union was here in America? While in some mystical twist of fate, the, the Russian people are actually refining the roots of their morality... I mean, this is not the same thing as saying Putin's a great guy. But it does appear that uh, in some ways, Russia, for whatever its faults, appears to be more grounded in reality than much of American culture is. Dang, that's a bitter pill. Good luck in swallowing that one. This is The Brian Hyde Show.